They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife Caitlin and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This episode does come with a warning for mentions of suicide, murder, cancer, and pregnancy-related trauma. This episode, we read The One by John Mars, a book that follows five couples as they discover their soulmate is not what they imagined. The One is John Mars' third novel. Before he was a fiction author, he was a journalist for over 20 years, a career he said he chose after realizing he wasn't good at anything else. Direct quote. Direct quote. His first novel, The Wronged Son, republished later as When You Disappear, was initially rejected by 80 agents and publishers, leading to his decision to self-publish on Amazon in 2013. Ten years later, John Mars has nine best-selling novels, including today's selection, The One. The One was originally self-published on Amazon in 2017, and was picked up by Penguin Publishing. It has now been published in 35 languages and inspired a 2021 Netflix series by the same name. The One follows five different points of view, and each is its own isolated story with minimal overlap, happening concurrently. For simplicity's sake, I am going to tell each character's story through, one at a time. All of our characters lived in the UK in an unspecified, not-so-distant future, with technology mostly like our own. The one difference being that much of the world now finds love through a dating service called Match Your DNA that claims to pair people with their one true genetic soulmate. I'm gonna warn you guys, this is a long summary. So get a snack, have some water, go to the bathroom, settle in. (laughs) Our first character is Mandy. A divorced woman in her 30s who feels left behind after her husband leaves her for his matcher DNA pairing, and her many sisters have all matched up and had babies and made happy little nuclear families. She's therefore all too excited when matcher DNA notifies her that she has at last been matched, and with a man who is close to her in age and geographically near her home in Essex. However, much too nervous to reach out to him, she chooses to simply stalk his social media for a time. This is how she learns that she is too late. While her matcher DNA email was sitting in her inbox, her match Richard was in a horrible car accident. The details of his memorial service are online, and she decides to attend. At the service, Mandy meets Richard's sister Chloe and his mother Pat, who welcome her into the family and tell her all about the man she surely would have loved. After a few weeks, Pat makes a proposal. While Mandy may not be able to meet Richard and marry him as she once hoped, he did have a bit of his sperm frozen during an adolescent battle with testicular cancer. She can't have Richard, but she could still have his baby. They say Richard always wanted a family and would have been happy to know his match had found him and had his son or daughter even after his death. Mandy agrees, becoming pregnant with Richard's child two months later and moving in with Pat and Chloe. Mandy's sisters think this is insane, carrying a dead man's child, but Mandy tells herself they just don't understand how important this is to her. However, Mandy begins to have doubts after she meets Richard's ex-girlfriend, who swears Richard didn't want kids, 
and never even signed up for Matcher DNA. In fact, she says his mother approached her about having Richard's baby too, right after his accident, and she refused. She also drops a bombshell that Richard is not dead. His accident put him in a vegetative state, and he's in a long-term care facility, but he's very much alive. Mandy confronts her in-laws and attempts to leave their home, but Pat becomes violent. When Mandy threatens to keep Pat from the baby, she shoves Mandy, causing her to hit her head and go into early labor. When she wakes up at the hospital a few days later, she's undergone an emergency C-section, but is assured that everything is fine. Her baby boy is healthy and already being well cared for by his aunt and grandmother. Mandy calls the police, and after several weeks of searching, they locate Pat, Chloe, and the baby at Pat's vacation cottage. The police arrest Chloe, but Pat would rather die than give up her grandchild. She locks herself in the bathroom and attempts to overdose on pills. The police break the door down and are able to save the baby and Pat's life. In her final chapter, Mandy brings her baby to Richard's hospital room, where she lays the child beside his father, who will likely never lay eyes on him. Our second plotline is about Christopher and Amy, the newly matched pair that seem to be getting on wonderfully. They go on nice dates, they enjoy spending time together, they have fantastic sex. There's just one snafu. Their occupations don't really mesh too well. See, Amy's a police officer. She works in white-collar crimes, but recently her entire station has been all hands on deck with this serial killer in the area, so she's really weighed down by all this. Christopher's a graphic designer on paper, but his real passion is his night job, being a serial killer. As the couple spend more and more time together, Christopher finds himself really falling in love with Amy, so much that he finds he doesn't even really like killing anymore. But he started this murder spree with an end date in mind, and he figures it would be best to see it through. Unfortunately, on the night of his last planned attack, Amy confronts him at the crime scene. She's found him out, and now she's come to put a stop to him. But she doesn't want to be known as the girlfriend of that serial killer, so she decides vigilante justice is a better idea. She kills Christopher with his own weapon and disappears from his life like she was never there. Up next we have Jade, who's been chatting with her match Kevin online for months. He's a great guy, Jade knows it's love. But Kevin lives in Australia and she's sick of only talking to him through a keyboard. So Jade gets the brilliant idea one day to hop on a flight to Australia and surprise Kevin. He'll be so excited. But when she arrives, she gets a nasty shock. Kevin is dying. He's in the final stages of terminal cancer. The man she meets looks nothing like the photo she's seen of this handsome young adventurer she fell in love with. He's frail, sickly, dying. She's heartbroken and at the same time guilt-ridden because she doesn't feel any of the spark of love at first sight that she expected. As a matter of fact, she can't help but think that Kevin's brother Mark is pretty hot. Jade spends the next month with Kevin and his family, helping to care for him and trying her best to love him as her match. But time and again, she finds her love for him is only friendly, even brotherly. Kevin, however, is deeply in love with Jade and asks her to marry him as a final wish. Even though she doesn't feel the same way, she agrees, 
and the pair are married in an intimate ceremony in their town. Shortly after, Kevin passes away. In the aftermath of Kevin's death, Jade and Mark admit that they're attracted to each other, and Mark confesses that he was Jade's match all along. He and Kevin took the match your DNA test at the same time, and when he got a match and Kevin didn't, he swapped their results so that Kevin could have love before he died. At first, Jade feels betrayed by this, but she gets over it pretty quickly, and the pair set off on a little road trip around Australia. Moving on, we have Nick, a Birmingham man who's preparing to marry his longtime girlfriend, Sally. Nick thinks match your DNA is a load of hooey, but Sally thinks it would be fun to take the test, just to prove they're really meant to be together. So they send in their spit swabs, and a few weeks later they have the results, and it's not a match. As a matter of fact, Nick's match is a physical therapist living right there in Birmingham. A gorgeous, athletic, young New Zealand expat named Alexander. Nick is shook that he was matched with a man, though he's sure it's just a mistake. Sally thinks this is hilarious and suggests Nick should go meet Alexander. So they make an appointment at the physical therapist's for a massage, just so Nick can prove to Sally that this DNA stuff is junk science, he's not gay, he won't feel a thing. But when Nick and Alex meet for the first time, fireworks. <laughs> Nick's never felt like this before. Alex consumes his every waking thought. He's obsessed, head over heels, falling apart at the seams. When Alex calls him and admits that he knows who Nick is, and he felt the exact same initial spark, despite being in a similar has-a-girlfriend-thought-he-was-straight situation, they start to see each other. Alex and Nick decide it can't hurt to just get to know each other, right? Just as bros. I mean, they're not gay or anything, so it's fine. They can just meet up for a beer, and it doesn't have to mean anything. Spoiler, it totally means something. While things don't get physical, these men are very much in love. They're not telling their respective girlfriends that they've been seeing each other. And after several weeks of carrying on this emotional affair, Nick can't keep the secret any longer. He admits everything to Sally in a very awkward public situation. And now that Nick broke that seal, Alex breaks up with his girlfriend too, and the boys start dating properly, even moving in together for a while with Nick making plans to travel back to New Zealand with Alex and meet his family. Everything goes wrong, though, when Sally calls Nick with a surprise. She's pregnant. Nick is a good person, and he's always wanted a child. So he doesn't want to move halfway across the world and raise his child through video chat. But Alex has to go home to New Zealand because his father is sick and needs someone to take care of him. Nick makes the difficult decision to stay and raise his child with Sally, even though they won't be romantically involved anymore. And he and Alex break up, cutting contact because they're both brokenhearted and they feel that they can't carry on a long distance relationship. Nine months later, Sally goes into a suspiciously early labor, almost like the alleged timeline of her pregnancy might not add up and the baby comes out looking suspiciously like Nick's best friend, Deepak. Turns out Sally had a match she wasn't sharing too, 
She and Deepak have been carrying on an affair for a while now, unbeknownst to Nick or Deepak's wife. But Deepak decided right before Sally found out she was pregnant that he wanted to focus on being a good husband and father to his own family. So when Sally realized she was pregnant, she decided to claim Nick was the father. Then she died in childbirth. Nick decides he's been through enough and he deserves a happy ending. So he takes the baby, because Deepak didn't want her, and moves to New Zealand where he tracks down Alex and they live happily ever after. Our last protagonist is Ellie, the brain behind Match Your DNA. We get a first-hand view of all the controversy that has surrounded Match Your DNA, as Ellie has to employ a full-time security team to protect her from the bitter singles of England. After years of dedication, Ellie has finally found her own match, Timothy. While she's initially hesitant to let him in, particularly not wanting to let him know what her real job is, he seems like a great guy, and he slowly earns her trust. By Christmas, she's in love, even bringing him home to meet her family and taking him to a company holiday party. The company holiday party is where things get weird. One of Ellie's co-workers recognizes Tim as a former Match Your DNA applicant, but she's pretty sure his name was Matthew? But whatever, that's hardly nothing, right? Maybe she's mistaken. Yeah, no. It only takes a little more digging for Ellie to realize that Timothy is not who he says he is. His mother was one of Ellie's early research partners. He's known exactly who she was all along, and he has big problems with her. His real name is Matthew, and he's so many steps ahead of Ellie that by the time she figures out who he is, he's already chilling in her office, pouring a drink, ready to tell her his master plan. Matthew explains, supervillain monologue style, that when his mom was in college, she was a fellow research student working on Match Your DNA with Ellie, and her DNA was used as a sample without her knowledge. So was her husband's. Years later, Matthew's dad got matched, divorced his mother, and abandoned his family. Then Matthew's mom found her match, but it turns out he was a very bad man, who left her emotionally devastated, financially ruined, a social pariah, and then she became an alcoholic and she died. And clearly this was all Ellie's fault. So now Matthew's all grown up and ready to take revenge. His plan has a few steps. Step one, he pretended to interview for a job so he could access to the office and hack the Match Your DNA computer system. Then he messed around with the algorithm so that he could match his fake Tim persona with Ellie and seduce her. So then when she fell in love with him, he could tell everyone that she fell in love with someone who wasn't really her DNA match. But wait, there's more. Because he's also going to tell the whole world about how when she was starting Match Your DNA, she stole samples from students at her school, her research fellows. She even made deals with private hospitals and prisons to take DNA samples from prisoners, the mentally disabled, terminal medical patients. She essentially built her initial data off of people who didn't or couldn't consent, like most medical testing. Ellie brushes this off and says no one is going to care about one hacked result and some dubious experiments from 10 years ago. And that's when Matthew drops step three. He also randomly sent out two million other false matches over the last 18 months. No one matched in the last year and a half will know if their match is real. 
Lawsuits will pour in from all over. Matcher DNA will lose all public trust. Well, Ellie can't let that happen. So she picks up the nearest heavy object and uh, bashes Matthew's head in. He won't be saying anything now. That's when her assistant comes in to let her know that there's this weird video going out to all the employees of her and Matthew talking in her office. It's on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. It just dropped all at once. Looking at the screen, Ellie can do nothing but watch as video footage from a hidden camera plays back the last 20 minutes, broadcasting her failure and her crime for the world to see. The end. Now that we've covered the bones of the story, we'll have a quick ad break. Welcome back. We'll get our critique started with our initial thoughts. Now, normally this would be the part where I would pause and let you talk. I'm not gonna, because I need to talk about this for a moment. I love this freaking book. <laughs> I love it too. This was so fantastic. This I feel like we really needed this because we haven't had... I mean, spoiler alert, a five-star read so far this year on this podcast. I love this freaking book, and especially after reading The Soulmate Equation and having so many issues with The Soulmate Equation, this was like oh, a breath of fresh air. I love this freaking book. I know, I really feel like this did the most with the concept. It, it really did. This, like, I, I'm gonna tell you all right now, I'm a big fan of, like, Black Mirror and other speculative fiction stuff. Mm-hmm, me too, me and too. <laughs> Ever since Black Mirror specifically got cancelled and wasn't on Netflix anymore... I hope it's been cancelled. I thought the final season's just been delayed. It's... They're caught up in a lawsuit. They're, like, not making any more stuff right now. It's a whole thing. We don't know if or when they're ever gonna come back. Mm -hmm. The point is, it's not there. And I miss it. Mm -hmm. And this came along and filled the Black Mirror-sized hole that's been living in my heart since 2020. Mm -hmm. So I just... I loved this book so much that I went out right after this book and I read all of John Mars's other speculative fiction books because he writes psychological thrillers and speculative fiction. I found the speculative fiction ones and I, I read them all. <laughs> and I'm currently waiting on an advanced copy of The Marriage Act, which is his newest speculative fiction. It's already out in the UK, but it's not in the US yet and I'm waiting on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love this freaking book. Yeah. Um, we actually ended up reading most of this book on a plane because we were traveling to see family. And it was such a good pick for it. The pacing was so good, it kept us on the edge of our seats. It really made the plane ride a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, like, we'll, we'll do our positives. Like, since we've gotten our initial thoughts, if we love the book out the way, we'll go through the positives. Because this review is going to be mostly all positives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was just fantastic. Yeah, so step one, you said the pacing. Yes. The chapters are very short and every chapter ends on like a little cliffhanger. And the thing is it alternates between each point of view. It goes in a pattern. So you get, you know, one person's point of view, then you have to go through the other four, then you get back to that person. So you always want to keep going because you're like, I want to know what the frick happened to the last person. Yeah, like if you want to know what happened with Mandy over in her timeline about, uh, you know, having the dead man's baby. Then you have to read Alex and Jade and Christopher and Ellie and then get back to her and then you're just gonna be left on another cliffhanger again and this This is such a tried-and-true method to keep your readers constantly reading your book. Yeah, and every chapter is fairly short I think each chapter in the audiobook was about seven to ten minutes mm -hmm. Yeah, like 15 tops and they were all consistently length Which was just perfect for me. Yeah, and that's been consistent in 
the the two sequels that I've read as books. They're not sequels, but they're like spiritual sequels in the sense that they reference back and they take place in the same universe. Yeah, you read Passengers. Yeah, the other two that I've read, I read Passengers and I'm in the middle of The Minders right now. And those take place in the same universe with Passengers taking place about a year and a half ahead of this one. And then The Minders taking place about three years ahead of this one. And they're not sequels. They don't feature any of the same characters, but they do make references and match your DNA is still an element in those books. So it's probably best to read them in order. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so you don't have to read them in order, but you can. Like, for example, there's a character who's connected to Christopher in The Minders, and you don't have to know Christopher's whole story to understand her story, but it's a cool little Easter egg if you have read the one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's like... Also kind of a fun way of keeping your readers reading your follow-up novels. Mm -hmm. So like this these books are made to be addicting. Yeah, it's they're they're like popcorn. I just ah, I love them. <laughs> you know, obsessed. Next thing, every character has something that makes you care about them. Usually in books where you jump from one POV to the next in each chapter, there's always that one character that like when you get to their chapters you're like oh this person again skip like i don't give a crap about this person's storyline that didn't happen for me in this book mm -hmm. i cared about all five of these people i definitely had my favorites mm -hmm. but there was not a single plot line that i was like i wish this particular storyline wasn't in the book mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe that's because every chapter ends on a hook, so you always have a reason to want to come back to each character's story. Yeah. Like, there were definitely some characters that, like, if the book was just them, I'd have read a whole book that was just them. Like, Nick, Nick and Alex, they were definitely a favorite of mine. I would have read a whole book that was just them. Mm -hmm. But even, like, the ones that I wasn't as invested in, like Jade... I wasn't as invested in Jade, but I know that there's someone out there that Jade's storyline was their favorite. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing. This was a diverse enough group of people and they were all interesting enough that everyone's gonna have a favorite and there's not gonna be one clear fan favorite. I don't think. I think everyone's gonna have a different favorite. Mm -hmm. Who was your favorite? Um, you know, it's hard. I don't actually feel like I can choose a favorite. They all feel like they're on the same level, but I do agree with you that I did enjoy Nick's storyline the most. Yeah, I think because it had the happiest ending. Yeah. <laughs> We're a sucker for a happy ending. Yeah. The next note is kind of hearkening back to the way that Matcher DNA was incorporated into the story, because the world building is so good and does so much with the concept. Mm -hmm. Like, you can really see the way that, like, at this point in the story, one in seven couples have gotten together through Match Your DNA, and it's starting to affect the culture mm -hmm. as to where now people are looking down on couples that aren't paired through Match Your DNA. And what I really appreciated about this story and the way Match Your DNA was implemented was they didn't act like the technology was bullshit. Mm -hmm. And that would have really rubbed me the wrong way because, you know, I feel like sometimes stories or even audiences like to have this whole wild concept and then say, but it all wasn't real because, like... Government corruption or something. Yeah, and I feel like that's boring and kind of a cop-out. <laughs> because in this world, we don't have match your DNA. And I don't want the world that I'm reading to be less interesting. 
and more like this world. Yeah, and that was a gripe we had with the soulmate equation. If you're just tuning in now, by the way, the soulmate equation was our last episode. We chose these books intentionally back to back because they both feature the concept of a DNA-based soulmate app. Mm -hmm. um, but with the soulmate equation, the idea was that you didn't have like one perfect match. It was that they like compared your DNA to match you like as closely as possible. Whereas in this one, it's like, no, you have one match. There's a specific signifying marker on your DNA and only one other person in the world has that same signifying marker as you. And that person is your soulmate. And so there's none of this like, oh, we're only a 50% match, but they're an 80% match. And you could always wonder if maybe there's someone better out there. Like, no, either you have a match or you don't. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, sucks to be you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, with the whole twist at the end of the matches in the last two years, you, some of them might not be real. And then that'll just make people question whether or not the person they're paired with, they really clicked with was based on the power of suggestion. That's one thing, and I like that it went there, rather than making the assessment that the whole thing was just the power of suggestion and none of it was real, because I feel like that would have made the whole story way less interesting. Yeah, and there's even clear narrative hints that say it's not the power of suggestion, because you have Jane's story, for example, where she has this man who's supposed to be her match, who she thinks is her match, and power of suggestion would say that he is her match, and she's spent months getting to know him and she likes him as a person, you'd think she would be in love with him if it was just power of suggestion. But she feels an immediate connection to the person who really is her DNA match, who is his brother. Mm -hmm. So you know that there is something there when it comes to the matches being real. There is an element of power of suggestion if somebody says, you know, you should be with this person and so you feel like you should be. But there's also definitely that scientific element of when you meet your match, it hits you. Mm -hmm. And you know, this reminds me of when we read I, Robot by Isaac Asimov. Asimov. The book is totally different from the movie, by the way. The movie like spits in the face of everything the book stands for. <laughs> yeah, if you, watch, so you know. yeah, if you watch the Will Smith movie, then you didn't read the book. <laughs> yeah, but like the idea behind the book is that the author was already <laughs> like way back in the day, bored of the idea of robot revolutions, <laughs> which is what the movie is about. Yeah. Sigh. But he wanted to write a book that was about how robots could malfunction without ever once intentionally attacking a human. And it was so much more interesting and so much more engaging. And I feel like that's kind of the same attraction that I had to the concept of this story about how you know, we're looking at what could go wrong within it if it's real and still throwing in that hint of doubt at the end. Yeah, all the ways this could go wrong without it being bullshit. Yeah, and I'm just so happy that the story went in that direction. Mm -hmm. I was also a big fan of like how the world building established just how like world shattering something like this could potentially get because we hear all kinds of horror stories about what happens when people feel betrayed by this app. Because we hear horror stories already in the present day of what happens when, you know, somebody finds out their partner's cheating on with them on Tinder or something. 
But like, what happens here is one of the things that has become kind of a problem, I guess you would say, is couples who were together before Match Your DNA became a big thing go and get their DNA tested, find out they're not a match, and one of them has a match out there, and they leave their partner for the match, and the jilted partner becomes violent about it. And sometimes they take that violence out on the couple, sometimes they take it out on the people who made the app. Sometimes they take it out on the world. So it's become kind of this new threat of like, if you're already in a committed relationship, do you test your DNA? What if you're not a match? What happens? There's also this thing that they talk about of how domestic violence rates have gone down, but part of that is because people who are matched, who are then still experiencing domestic violence, don't want to turn their match in because they're afraid of people being like, how could you do this to your match? This person's supposed to be your soulmate and things like that. So it's interesting how the concept of a DNA match has changed the world. They've also talked about how things like racism and homophobia have changed because now we have DNA proof that Your match can be someone of a different race, can be someone of the same sex, things like that. And so a lot of governments aren't, like, making homosexuality illegal anymore and stuff like that because there's scientific proof now that gays are people. Um, (laughs) And I just loved how much the world building got into all the implications that this could potentially have. Mm Mm-hmm after having been a thing for, at this point, it's been around for years and years and years. It's not like it's just coming on the scene. Yeah. And um, that's another thing. The book takes the science itself very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that they did explain what exactly it is that makes the person your soulmate. I did get kind of a kick out of it, but basically the idea is they find the person who's pheromones will be the most pleasing to you and will be ideal and yours will be ideal for them. Which basically means this app determines your soulmate based on how the person smells. Like you're finding the person with the most pleasing smell to you and that will be your soulmate. Which is really funny to me, but at the same time I do know there is some legitimacy to this because psychological studies about chemical pheromones have been done and have shown that they do in fact have an effect. Yeah. And it- It also explains why people can feel strong attraction to someone that's not their soulmate. Because it's like, oh, you know, their pheromones are close, they're just not precise. And it also explains why your soulmate match might not be a good fit, even if they're your soulmate match. Because your DNA says this is the person you're supposed to be with and you guys fit together perfectly. They just smell so good, you know? They just, they smell so good and they're, you know, everything about your DNA says you guys should be together. But, uh, if you want to use a serial killer, (laughs) maybe that's not actually the person for you. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is not in this book. This is mentioned in the Minders, but I am going to mention a little extra world building because it just shows how, like, detailed John Mars gets in. He mentions that there's a social phenomenon in the minders of 
people who are not matched being sorted into what he calls the four T's, which are tourists, which are people who are like not doing the match your DNA test yet because they kind of want to like sow their wild oats. Mm-hmm. They're like they they might do it eventually, but they're just they're right now they're just gonna fuck around. There's tough luckers who are people like Mandy who had their match but for one reason or another can't be with them so they have to date other people there's traditionalists who are people who don't believe in match your dna they don't want to do it i can't remember what the fourth t stands for but it basically means people who already took the test and are just like waiting on their match and are basically just having casual relationships that they don't intend to get serious with while they wait for their match to come in. Was that tourists? No, tourists was people who haven't taken the test yet. Okay. That's the, dif- that's the difference between the two T's. That's why I can never remember what the what the other T is, is because it's very similar to tourists, but it's not the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. They're called like taste testers or something. Oh, I think you might be right. <laughs> that's gotta be it. The book also takes some time to evaluate human rights issues that could come with this invention. Because in Ellie's chapters, they spend a lot of time with Ellie and Tim slash Matthew talking about sort of all of his issues with the app. And one thing he talks about is the idea of things like age, because your match can be a drastically different age than you. There are people who are 20 getting matched up with people who are 80 and things like that. And he's like, what happens if, you know, a pedophile gets matched with a child? And she's like, well, first of all, we do background checks. (laughs) So, you know, that's not happening. Second of all, every country requires different ages of consent. But regardless, whatever country you're in, you have to be of the legal age of adulthood in your country to do the test. And, like, he talks about things like, you know, the mentally handicapped, as he he puts it, his phrase. He, he says mentally handicapped. You know, he talks about should people with mental disabilities be allowed to take the test? And she's like, yeah. Do they not deserve love? Mm-hmm. You know? But he's like, what if they get taken advantage of by their match? And she's like, that's not my problem. <laughs> like, yeah, I think... I just want to take a moment here, this isn't necessarily a positive or a negative note, but like, just looking into Tim's ideology, because I don't think we're supposed to side with him. Yeah. Like, Tim sucks. (laughs) Slash Matthew. But basically, he hates Ellie because of what happens with his mom, which like, that's that's on his parents, okay? Yeah. I don't see, see anyone trying to kill CEO of Tinder because their spouse cheated on them. Yeah, and like... And then he goes so far. Sorry for interrupting you. No, you're good. You're, I was interrupting you. <laughs> and then he goes so far as to call her a Nazi. <laughs> he does. Despite the fact that he also makes the argument that the mentally disabled shouldn't be allowed to find love through this app. He does. He he compares her to a Nazi at one point because of the fact that she built up her data using people who didn't know they were being tested on, which. If you know anything about the history of medical testing in the UK, the US, anything like that, that's a thing that people do. Yeah. It's not good. It's not right. But, like, at least she was just taking DNA swabs and putting them into a database. She wasn't, like, medicating people without their consent or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I 
will admit part of the reason that he had an issue with this that is fair, the man that his mother got fixed up with was one of the prisoners that Ellie had taken the DNA from in the early matching thing. He was a child molester. And so when his mom got matched up with this child molester who shouldn't have been in the system, but was because his DNA was used to originally bolster the stats when she was trying to do the early testing. So he was like an oops being in there and they got paired up. Then he went out and he did more pedophile shit (laughs) and he went to jail. And because he was her match, this woman stood by him and put all her money into trying to get him out of jail and things like that. And Matthew blames Ellie for all of this. And on the one hand, yeah, child molester shouldn't have been in that system. On the other hand, once you learn your husband's a child molester, I don't care what DNA says, that's when you leave him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you're a grown woman. And Matthew's victim complex when it comes to his mother is strong. I mean, really, you're saying that Sable shouldn't be allowed to find love? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely the big one when he was like, what about people with, like, autism or Downs or whatever? Should they be allowed to use this app? It's like, of course they should. It's like, if they're adults and they have the capability of being able to find the app, take the swab themselves, send it in themselves, download the app, contact their partner, clearly they have some cognitive abilities. So... Yes! <laughs> like, if your disability does not get in the way of your ability to consent, you should be allowed to find love. Yeah. And that that's an ongoing thing that people want to debate about all the time. But like, can we stop infantilizing the disabled, please? Mm-hmm. Moving on from that. <laughs> There's also this hilarious moment, though, where Ellie compares people suing her for the violent actions of people who are dissatisfied with their matches or their partner's matches or whatever. Because there's an example of a person who partner left them after getting matched with someone else. And so their response was to go on like a stabbing spree and just go stab people. And someone tried to sue her for that, like it was her fault. Yeah. (laughs) And she compares it, she says, suing me for that is like suing gun manufacturers and gun sellers for mass shootings. And I thought that was hilarious because we'd be doing that in America. (laughs) But again, I don't see anyone violently attacking or suing the head of Tinder because their spouse did something bad. Exactly, exactly. Also, like, are we suing, like, the manufacturers of, I don't know, what's a gun? I, I can wear Winchester. Are we suing the manufacturers of Winchester because of Uvalde or something? I don't think that was even the gun that was used in that case, but I don't, I don't know. I don't care. I don't think that's what we're doing. I don't think that's the same comparison, but I thought I, it just, it hit me for a minute. I was like, that's hilarious and a very 2017 British thing to say <laughs> to be reading in America in 2023 now. Mm-hmm. Moving on to another character note. Mm-hmm. I got such a kick out of Christopher's character. Oh my god, yes. And he's a serial killer, so I feel like I wasn't supposed to be laughing at him, 
But at this point, I've listened to so much true crime <laughs> that when it got to the point where you're getting introduced to Christopher's personality, I got a kick out of it, because Christopher has this whole I'm not like other serial killers mentality. Like, he's a teenage girl trying to say he's not like other girls. But much like that same teenage girl, he is exactly like every other serial killer out there. Yeah, he's like, I'm not like other serial killers. I read books about serial killers, and I plan things, and I don't get emotionally attached to my victims. Yep, and I'm it's highly like intelligent, <laughs> unlike all the rest of the serial killers in the world, and I don't take unnecessary risks. And he says that before almost killing his police officer girlfriend in his own bed. Yeah, and then she just wakes up and he's like literally holding a knife above her and she's like, what's going on? And he's like, uh, yeet, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Christopher, you're all these things. Yeah. You are reckless. You take unnecessary risks. Frankly, you're not that bright. And your inflated ego is textbook serial killer. Oh yeah, his narcissism is out the roof. I died listening to this scene about where he talks about he's going for a jog. And he talks about how when he jogs, he wears these gray sweatpants. You know the ones that everybody talks about on the internet for gray sweatpants season. He wears these gray sweatpants and no underwear. So that when he jogs, everyone can see his dick swinging around. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I love to go jogging in my gray sweatpants with no underwear so everyone can see my dick and get intimidated by it. And like at one point he stops and you know, his dick is there and he sees this gay couple like kind of looking at his dick and he's like, oh yeah, check it out. My dick's amazing. <laughs> like he gets real into it. Like, I'm sorry, my guy, that is the most narcissistic inflated ego let me just put myself in your space and make you uncomfortable serial killer bullshit i have ever seen mm -hmm. you are exactly like other serial killers like that is 100 percent the kind of shit that like btk or whatever would be out here doing mm -hmm. and he's all like no i don't only kill women because i'm a misogynist i <laughs> i do it because they're smaller than men and easier to overpower yeah, and me beating my past girlfriend has nothing to do with misogyny. What? <laughs> no, I'm far too above all of that. <laughs> yeah, neither does, you know, the girlfriend that I used to pimp out to other people or, you know, any of that. Like, he's got all these quirks and he's like, I'm not a sexual sadist. I just, you know, there was that one time that I took that one girlfriend and I told her that it would really turn me on to watch her fuck a bunch of other guys. And so I took her to a sex club and I had her fuck a bunch of different guys in front of me. And then I called her a whore and I dumped her. But that wasn't sexual sadism or anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was such a textbook serial killer and it was hilarious to watch as he was in this deep, deluded state of denial. He's, yeah, it's, and the thing is, he's, he's so evil at the same time. Like the crimes he commits, are truly disturbing. There's there's one murder he commits, because his whole thing is that he goes and he kills women, and he takes a picture of them. And then he goes back to the scene of the crime before, because he does like a person every other day. So then he goes back to the person before, and his idea is that he always like kills them in their own home and he follows their habits so that he knows that they won't be found for a couple days. So he goes back to the crime scene from the one he killed a few days before, and he leaves a picture of the next girl there at the crime scene as kind of a, you're behind me, I'm a step ahead of you kind of taunt. Mm -hmm. 
Again, this genius who thinks he's never gonna get caught repeatedly returns to the scene of his crime. crime. Repeatedly returns to his crime scenes, yeah. And he, at one point, kills a woman that he does not know at the time is pregnant. And killing her causes a miscarriage, which causes this medical phenomenon that I'd never heard of, but I looked it up and apparently it's real and it's terrifying, causes the baby to fall out after she dies. So when he comes back to the crime scene, there's a trigger warning, a dead baby on the floor. And that's what gets him caught because he sees that and that's what breaks him and he starts crying. And apparently tears and mucus and stuff, you know, those have DNA in them. And he cries all over her and he picks the baby up and he puts the baby in her arms and he's all tender and everything. And then he still snaps a picture. But while he's doing all that, he's crying. And so he leaves his tears and his mucus all the fuck over her. And so they find his DNA. <laughs> and that's how that's how his girlfriend finds out who he is and catches him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that was a horrifying and harrowing scene. And then the next scene we have with him is him jogging with his dick swinging. <laughs> and it's like, bro. He's so ridiculous. He's so ridiculous. Moving on to the next thing. Uh, yeah, moving on. So I really like the way that genre is incorporated into this book because it's like one part speculative sci-fi, one part thriller, and one part drama. And a little bit romance. And a little bit of romance. And because of that, the horror and thriller elements kind of happen at different stages of the book for different characters. And so it'll seem like things with Ellie are just like really amazing for the majority of the book. Meanwhile, with characters like Mandy, you'll start seeing red flags kind of early on. Yeah, meanwhile, Christopher is a walking red flag. His very first scene is him choking someone out. Mm-hmm. So, like, you get these red flags for each character at different stages in the book, and I think that's so interesting because you really never know when shit's gonna hit the fan for each of these characters. Yeah, and you never know how serious it's gonna get with anyone. You get this on the edge of your seat feeling like at any moment something could go horribly wrong for any of these people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe the way the book plays with the blended genres really played into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely John Mars's psychological thriller writing coming into this. Because, you know, before this he wrote two psychological thriller novels, and so that's blending in with the speculative fiction, and it really does keep you like... <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was that was really fascinating to enjoy. <laughs> Just like the unexpectedness of whenever something bad was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Another thing I really liked was the gender differences in this book. Mm-hmm. I felt were very realistic. I feel like when you get a multi-POV story where there are both men and women narrating, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it can become very obvious if an author is uncomfortable writing genders that are different than their own. Like, there's a whole Twitter dedicated to men writing women poorly. Oh yeah. John Mars does not have that problem. And yet, he doesn't just write women like they're men. There are very specific gender differences, not in the way they behave so much as the way they are socialized, that become apparent as you read the book. And I appreciated it because 
there's there's a few things. One, we've talked about how, you know, there's this pressure on people to be matched. One of the things that comes with that is women, especially in this universe, feel like they have to try even harder if they're not matched. Which, if you're in the world at all, especially if you're in the dating world, you know that, like, there are some people out there that have insanely high standards. And that goes for men, too. There are some people out there that have insanely high standards for men. You know, you can't be shorter than this. You can't make less than this amount of money, you know? Like, and there's this thing of, like, the people who are not matched feel like they have to try so much harder. So there's all these businesses around helping people be more appealing to those that they want to attract. Women are constantly dieting and getting plastic surgery and doing all kinds of other things to try and seem more appealing if they're not matched because there's this feeling that if you're a woman of a certain age and you haven't been matched, you're you're an old broad. You're over the hill. You gotta, gotta pull it together. <laughs> there's also these kind of differences in the way each character reacts when they're about to find out who their match is. You know, the excitement, the anticipation, everything, and the fears that they have. The women have worries like, what if he thinks I'm ugly? What if he's married? What if he's a criminal? What if he's violent? The men have fears like, what if she's fat? What if she's old? What if it's a man? And that kind of subtly shows us the differences between the genders that in this world still very much exist because that is kind of still a concern. You know, when when you're a woman in the dating world nowadays and you're going to go on a Tinder date, you know, men worry that you're not going to look like your profile picture. Women worry that he's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And so I like that they kept that. I felt like John Mars did a very good job of capturing the different anxieties that men and women have in the dating field, even when there is science telling you who your DNA match is. And playing with those expectations and also taking the three female characters, because he wrote five characters and three of them are women. And he made them all distinctly different. And I just, I really appreciated that. So like, and he's done the same thing in his other books too. Like, John Mars gets the man who can write women stamp. Mm-hmm. Bravo. Mm-hmm. So, approved. So that's why you should pick up the book. Now get out your red pens and let's edit. So this book was so amazing that we only really have two or three minor nitpicks about the story. I, I think it's two. Yeah. I have an extra one. Oh, you have an extra one? You can't yeah. put one? Okay. Why don't you go first? Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm curious to hear what your surprise is. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's more of a minor nitpick that kind of occurred to me at the very beginning of the novel, but it didn't really bother me so much as I moved on. I just wanted to mention that because the chapters are so short and you have five main characters, it was a little difficult to remember everyone at the very beginning of the novel. We did make a chart. Because, like, we were we were rapidly going through these five characters, and once we got into, like, the cyclical nature of it and started remembering their names, 
it was really easy to keep track of everybody. But it seemed like everyone's first chapter involved multiple other characters, so it was a little overwhelming in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But like, once you get past that and get used to everything, it didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I do remember making a chart of like, okay, this is the point of view character, this is their match, and this is the drama. Mm-hmm. After the first two chapters to kind of keep everything straight. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I actually did have another tiny nitpick, which was just... Ellie's character, I felt like we really didn't learn anything about who she was as a person outside of her job, her desire to find love for herself, and the tension she had with her family. Mm-hmm. And it made it pretty difficult for me to relate to her for like maybe the first half of the book, because I felt like I I really didn't know anything about her. I felt like that's who she was though, like she was this workaholic who had a bad relationship with her family. and was hesitant to find love because she was such a prominent figure. She was worried that men were going to use her for her status and money. Yeah, and that all makes sense. And so it didn't really bother me after a while, like after we started meeting her family. But it did feel in the beginning like she didn't have a lot of personality and like it was harder to relate to her than some of the other characters. I think a lot of the reason for that might have been because in the first, and this was this was a nitpick for me, was that in the beginning, they kind of tried to make it seem like a secret that Ellie was the creator of Match Your DNA. Yeah. Like, they kept hinting that she was the creator of something big that was controversial. But they didn't drop that she was the creator of Match Your DNA until, like, kind of halfway through her storyline, as if it was sort of this big reveal, even though we kind of figured it out, like, in the first or second chapter. Yeah, I think maybe it was, like, a third of the way through. And I feel like maybe if they hadn't made it seem so much like that was going to be a big surprise, and just let us know that because it wasn't a surprise it we, we knew it, it was written like it was supposed to be a surprise but it wasn't yeah i feel that but you know it was that was minor like i yeah i think we could have gotten to know her better if we hadn't been holding out this facade of mystery yeah i'm just left wishing that she had like a bit more personality, because she felt a little more undeveloped than all the other characters. Yeah, less mystery, more personality. Mm -hmm. My my main nitpick is, I felt like it was a little out of character for Amy to choose to kill Christopher instead of turn him in. I understand why she did it, because she says that, you know, the reason is because she's trying to make a name for herself in the police force, and if she turns him in and they catch him, she will forever be known as that cop who banged a serial killer. But by killing him instead, I feel like it goes against everything we've come to know about who she is as a person. Like, she's very much like the good cop who doesn't understand how anyone could hurt another human and is all like very lawful good alignment. Yeah, I don't know if she's even ever killed anyone on the job. Yes, yeah, she works in white collar crime. When would she have had to? She deals with tax fraud and shit. Yeah, so it, it was definitely unexpected. I won't say it was outside the realm of possibility, but I think you're right that this was a pretty dramatic shift. Yeah, and it, it did. It was something that felt like it was done more for dramatic effect than because it actually fit the character. Mm-hmm. And then my last nitpick is I have an unanswered question. Mm -hmm. Because we know that it's possible for your soulmate to be a drastically different age than you. I wondered, and this question was never answered, if it's possible for your soulmate to not exist in your same lifetime. Is it possible that your soulmate existed 200 years ago? 
you know, maybe your soulmate was Queen Elizabeth or Genghis Khan or someone. Is that possible? Or is it like a known fact that your soulmate will at the very least exist within the same general era as you? I think for me, I would guess that it is possible since there are some people who never find a genetic match. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of sucks for this world. Yeah, like that's really sad if your, your soulmate lived and died a full life 300 years ago. Yeah, like, it feels like if your soulmate or your match dies, you don't get a do-over. Yeah. That's so harsh. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's getting into some philosophical stuff that probably doesn't fit with the science, because then you're getting into the idea of, like, can they be reborn? Like, if your soulmate dies, do they get reborn as someone else? Like, but the book is not interested in those questions. Mm -hmm. But I was. <laughs> Final thoughts? Yep, that's that's all of our nitpicks. That's, that's it. That's it for negatives. Final thoughts. I loved this book. You already know I read all the sequels. I'm obsessed. I will read everything, every speculative fiction that John Mars puts out in this universe for the rest of my life. We've intentionally avoided the Netflix series. After we finish this episode, I'm going to watch the Netflix series. I love this book and you should read it. If you liked Black Mirror, if you liked iRobot, the book, not the movie, if you like anything like that, go read this friggin' book. And I feel comfortable calling John Mars a new favorite author. I love him. And the fact that his books were turned down 80 times before he got picked up, like people always talk about, you know, how JK Rowling was turned down by X number of publishers, like, blah, blah, you know what? Stop giving her credit. If you want an inspiration story, use John Mars. <laughs> mm -hmm. John Mars was turned down by 80 agents and publishers and he decided to self-publish this book on Amazon with the goal being to sell 100 copies to people he didn't know. And he did that, and now he is a best-selling author with nine best-selling books in the last 10 years. Someone give this man a medal. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> five out of five, if you couldn't guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. This book came into my life at the perfect time. The fast pace and intrigue kept me turning the page for hours, and I blasted through it. It really does fill the speculative fiction gap in my heart that Black Mirror left behind. What else is there to say? This story perfectly accomplished what it set out to do. Five out of five. As always, our ratings are subjective. Tell us what you thought. Give us your notes on Twitter at Couple of Notes, on Instagram at Couple of Notes Podcasts with underscores between the words, and on TikTok at Couple of Notes Podcasts with no underscores. Or support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. Patreons get access to ad-free episodes and early access when we remember to post them. <laughs> and remember to give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform you are listening to this on. Thank you, and we will meet back here after, after the, the next, next chapter. chapter.